It is your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Glad to be back for another day. Good one coming up here. Lots to get to. Chris Hine from the Star Tribune joins me here in a little bit to talk Timberwolves. Some off-season stuff that caught my eye. He caught up with Anthony Edwards, Timberwolves star guard a little while ago. And thought that that conversation was interesting enough that I would talk to Chris about it. Just Ant's goals for the offseason, where his game can grow. And of course, we can't talk about Anthony Edwards without talking about Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert. So the discussion got into those players as well. That will be coming up, like I said, in just a few minutes. Got some Zadarius Smith thoughts at the end and some NBA NHL playoff thoughts at the end as well. First, though, what did I miss? It was a late one. It was already going to be a late one. Twins Dodgers, but so many twists and turns, extra innings out on the West Coast, and just, you know, just when the Twins finally solved one nemesis, at least temporarily this year, the Yankees winning that season series against New York for the first time since 2001. Again, that's such a dramatic statement to make, but since 2001, that is clearly the team that they have struggled with the most over the years. Playoffs, certainly a big part of that as well, but won that season series, feeling good about themselves when they get a problem solved, when they get an old nemesis taken care of. Two new ones, two old ones, I should say, reemerge. One of them being the Dodgers. Like I said, they've now lost after losing 9-8 to eight in extra innings in dramatic fashion on, on Monday night. They've now lost 11 straight times to the Dodgers. Now, those span a lot of different years because in the previous world orders of baseball, teams uh, in different leagues wouldn't play each other all that often. Now, they will see the Dodgers uh, once a year under the new scheduling format. Now is that turn out in L.A. Um, so they lost again to the Dodgers, 11 in a row against the Dodgers. So that is troubling in the first place. The second place, old nemesis Phil Cuzzy, connected to the Yankees, by the way. Um, he's their nemesis because he called that double that should have been a double for Joe Maurer foul back in the 2009 American League Division Series. Twins go on to lose that game, lose that series, and, you know, nobody's really forgiven Phil Cuzzy almost 14 years later. Now, he gave the, he's given them reasons along the way over the last 14 years to still dislike him, but his calls um, on Alex Kirilov in a key situation on Monday were uh, particularly egregious. So this was, this was the second of two uh, bad umpiring things the Twins had to complain about. The first actually came in regulation. Um, this tied 6-6 late. Um, twins trying to hold on, trying to, they'd rallied on a long Trevor Larnick home run. And then uh, David Peralta for the Dodgers, runner on second, two outs, hit a hard ground ball down the first baseline. Looked to be foul from a lot of different angles, including the uh, the home plate angle was probably the best one, but called fair by first base umpire. Shane Livensparger um, called it fair, and that is not a reviewable play. So that becomes a run-scoring hit. Twins go down 7-6. to six. Now, they did, to be fair, rally in the ninth. Byron Buxton double-tied the game. So the Twins did get it to extra innings, tied 7-7, and in the 10th had a glorious opportunity to bust the game open. Loaded the bases. Christian Vasquez walked with the bases loaded to give them an 8-7 lead. Still had the bases loaded, nobody out. And up one run already, that free runner scoring. Now, they got a, you know, they made one out, and then Alex Kirilov comes to the plate. First pitch, way outside. Looked like it was high, too. Called a strike by home plate umpire Phil Cuzzy. 
he of the, like I said, aforementioned 2009 botched call down the line, the left field line on Mowers would be double. Second pitch is a foul tip, or a foul ball, so it's 0-2 now. Third pitch, way inside, two, three inches inside, called strike three. So it's got, you know, the, the Dodgers announcers are just incredulous on the play. They can't believe it. Even the Dodgers announcers, like I said, are, are incredulous. They can't believe that those were all called strikes. I think Awful Announcing had a recap of it, said, uh, Boy, oh boy, Phil Cuzzy is just making being a major league hitter way harder than it already is. Hey, join the club. He's been doing it for years to the Twins. Quote, both sides of the plate were an extra three inches. We shall take it. I mean, that's not even close. That's impossible for a hitter. It was impossible for Alex Kirilov, and the Twins certainly don't need any more help struggling with the bases loaded. That's been a major problem for them this season. Dodgers get out of the inning, score one in the 10th. Neither team scores in the 11th, and the Dodgers get the winning run on a bases-loaded walk in the 12th inning. Jorge Lopez, um, a 3-2 pitch, just missed. Would have been a strike probably on Alex Kirilov, but not for Jorge Lopez. So there you have it. That was the recap of the game at Old Nemesis. Old Nemesis creeping up right when the Twins had gotten rid of the Yankees. They now have the Dodgers and Phil Cuzzy back on their ledger haven't beaten the Dodgers, I believe, since 2011. And again, a lot of time spanning those games, but got swept in 2014, swept in 2017, swept in four games, split between two ballparks last season, and then losing the opener here right now. So maybe they can do better in game two. Hopefully it'll be shorter and less controversial. Hopefully they can solve this nemesis too. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M, so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Welcome in Chris Hine from the Star Tribune, covers the Wolves. I gave him a little bit of a break, two, three weeks before I said, Chris, got to have you back on. We got to talk some Wolves. It's the it's the hot stove NBA offseason, at least for the Timberwolves. They're not usually playing in mid-May, even though um, a handful of teams still are pursuing a championship. Um, Chris wrote a piece on Anthony Edwards, and every, that ran in the paper over the weekend on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. It's online, startribune.com. Interview was late last week with Ant. It was just you and him, if I'm not mistaken. Or was that a group, was that a group setting? Yep. Or just no, the it, was just, it was, well, it was his PR people as well yeah. on the call. But just me and him chatting for about 20 minutes or so on what, Thursday afternoon. What do you, I uh, mean, you know, I, obviously I read the story. I thought it was interesting. Um, I want to hear from you first, you know, because... Mm-hmm things get left on the cutting room floor, but also, you know, there's like the tone of the interview, stuff like that. What, what stood out to you from what he said, kind of where his head is at right now in this off season? Yeah. A couple, couple things. Um, I, we covered a lot of, I think a lot of ground um, in that interview. Um, the, the big highlights that kind of stand out are he really wants to be the guy who's got the ball in his hands at the end of the game, taking the last shot. If, if he's going to, have one-on-one coverage or he's going to not be double teamed or forced to give up the ball. He's not going to want to give up the ball in the, in the last couple of seconds. And, you know, you saw he was the person that took the last shot at the end of game five right. uh, against Denver. Saw that throughout the season. Um, so, but 
he solidified himself like he is going to take the shot in those moments um you know and we'll see how that works with you know Carl Anthony Towns a guy who uh also wants to be the guy that takes those kind of shots and and won a couple games for the Wolves in in late in the season when they needed to have some um so you know we'll see how that dynamic plays itself out as we head into next year uh two ant i i think very specifically uh wants to improve his ability to make contested jumpers that sure. is something he is really striving for and one of the reasons why he wants to work with Jaden mcdaniels this offseason uh, and stay here in minnesota uh, for a good chunk of the offseason is to be around somebody like Jaden, who's going to challenge him defensively. Um, he, he's learned a lot from watching Luka Doncic uh, in that regard, where he's like, you know, I watch Luka and he never really panics. He never really quickens his shot. It's the same shot and he's still able to get it off. Um, and so he's he's learned a little bit from from guys around just watching guys around the league who don't change their shot, even if there's a bunch of defense around them. So he's trying to incorporate that into his game. He said he felt like he was doing it towards the end of last season in the playoffs. And that's why his playoffs were as successful as they were. Definitely seems like, you know, this is not a surprise, but just from reading that and just kind of examining him over the year and even, even in past years, someone who, wants to be you know wants to be among the all-time greats right he's got kind of michael jordan kind of in that in his sights like he says and that's a that's a lofty that's a lofty goal you know he's only three years in and jordan you know arguably the best player uh, of all time but you know i I remember that the narrative of him coming out of college was does he really like basketball all that much it was just kind of this kind of half-baked theories of of what what he was and who he is um i think we have a pretty good sense right now that he will put in the work he he wants to do the work to be not just you know a top 20 nba player which i think we could say he is right now or or at least very close to that he wants to be you know in that very very elite group um and it's thinking about where his ceiling is is kind of interesting because he's improved i think every year especially i think this past year took a pretty good jump but you know, kind of thinking about what's next for him. Are, are is that enough? You know, contested shots and you know, think, thinking about efficiency, things like that, and end of game stuff. That that is where you cement a little bit of your legacy. But what else kind of gets him to that? You know, the, kind of helps him keep taking those steps along the way. There's a little bit of leadership, I think, in there too. And we talked about that. That didn't really, I didn't really get that into the piece. So this is kind of something that a uh, part of the conversation that I didn't find room for but you know he's he said he's more confident to speak up um if something's bothering him he feels more latitude to uh say so um communicate that to his teammates when it comes to basketball stuff he said he said people would be surprised at how much he doesn't talk you know because they, they they see kind of like the public perception perception of him and you think like oh he's a very talkative kind of guy but right. When it comes to, I guess, more basketball kind of that sort of stuff, he he says he tends to not be as talkative, um, but that you know was gradually starting to change as teammates around him are you know giving him and encouraging him to 
say more, uh, say what's on his mind. So that's an ongoing process that, you know, I don't think Michael, for instance, I don't think Michael Jordan was ever shy about telling teammates what was on his mind. Um, So that's one part of it. You know, you just sense being around him late in the season, in the playoffs, like there is a, there's a desire to win there that, you know, I, I think is very present in him. And he was very disappointed, upset when they lost in the playoffs. Um, I I think two first round exits is already too many for him and wearing on him as a as a player. He said during that Denver series that, you know, he doesn't consider himself a star in the league because he's never been out of the first round of the playoffs. You know, in order for him to kind of take the label of a of a star, he feels like he has to at least get out of the first round. Um, so I sense that there's there is a real determination on his part. Over three years of, of covering Ant, he he does a, a really good job of of coming off as authentic, of of saying a lot of the right things. Um, you know, I think sometimes putting stuff into practice on the court proves to be a, a more difficult challenge. And, it, and it's only natural. He's a young player in the right. NBA still learning how to navigate the ins and outs of, of the league. Um, but I think what you can be encouraged by is his, his intention, his determination, and the fact that even though he may say certain things and he's going to improve and work on certain things. It doesn't always happen overnight, but it happens gradually. And I think you could see that, that growth in him uh, throughout three seasons, the, the, the growth has been gradual um, and every year he has improved and uh, we'll see what year four has to bring. I think one thing too, that he can do, and I think he would probably say this, maybe he did say this, uh, something Chris Finch head coach has talked about is sometimes when they get, in those situations where they, I think they blew counting the play in and counting that last, uh, that last play and playoff game. I think they lost 20 leads of double digits or more this year, ended up losing those games. And I think sometimes in those sequences, and I think you saw it at the end of game four, even when they managed to win still, he's, he tries to be the hero sometimes and tries to get like the five point shot or tries to like end the run. Like right here, we're going to, you know, takes a clock, takes a shot with like, 17 seconds left on the shot clock that you can get with four seconds left in the shot clock, things like that. Is that, I think that's part of the on-court maturity too, like kind of understanding when to go, when do you need to get kind of your best shot versus trying to like hurry and try to end this run and, and, you know, getting, getting the run, getting a run stopped and getting the momentum turned through patience rather than urgency sometimes I think is something he could, he could learn as well. Well, that's you know that's their biggest problem just as as a team overall is yeah. how do how do you navigate these these final minutes of a game and you know I I I did I sensed in our in our interview that you know he you know <laughs> he feels like I put it on me I, I could take the blame myself if things go wrong now whether or not that's the best tactic that they could employ I I'm not sure. Having the ball in his hands is the best tactic, absolutely, because you want to make sure the defense is is coming over to him. Um, but him always maybe trying to force up a shot, I don't, I don't know that that's always that should be just their offense uh, right. late late in game situation. So, like I said, we'll see how this how this plays out um, when it, when the when it actually 
comes about next October. Um, but late game situations, they got to, they got to come up with something better. And maybe, maybe with cohesion, this, this group having a little more time together, this starting unit that only played, I don't know, what was it? A, a dozen games together. Or so 15 games, whatever, whatever the number was where everybody was actually available. Right. Um, probably less than that considering McDaniels was out for the, for the playoffs. Right. Um, so, you know, this group that has only played 10 ish games together, you know, with a training camp and with more time in the early part of a regular season to try and figure stuff out when it comes to that, that part of a game. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's just a, it is a, a hurdle for them to climb. And as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about kind of some of the dynamics too, between Ant and Carl Anthony Towns and Towns was on a podcast. Like it was last week with Paul George. That was fairly interesting. in, in a lot of regards, he talked about kind of the same things that Ant was saying, like he feels like the season, you know, was a failure to a certain degree because they didn't get out of the first round. That was his minimum expectation was that they would go, to at least the second round and have a competitive second round series. And they certainly came up short of, of that, but just kind of the, you sense the packing order changing here. Um, and maybe some of that happened because towns was out for so long this season, but you kind of sense, remember when, uh, remember when Rosas, Gerson Rosas got here and all of a sudden it went from talk of towns and Wiggins to towns. And they kind of like, Wiggins was no longer this foundational piece. And I don't think they're there. I think they're still talking about Towns and Ant as kind of their foundational pieces, even if I'm not convinced Towns will be here for the long haul. But how, how do you think that dynamic works either from kind of from the top down, from the organizational structure, and also you know between Ant, Towns, and even Gobert in terms of kind of pecking order, and that sorts itself out with last shot time, sorts itself out with kind of who's going to be the vocal leader, things like that. Well, I mean, you know, I, I feel like when they made the trade for Rudy, it was, and you trade away all those draft picks, it's not a move that signals Ant is the organizational number one. It's it was it's either a tie with Carl or Carl was still ahead at that moment in time. Because that's a move done, you know, they'll they'll argue that it was done to raise the floor of the team and, and it helps the younger guys get playoff experience but that's a move done to win now to maximize the window of carl anthony towns being in his now kind of late 20s where he's right in his physical peak as an nba player so i think when you when you zoom out and just look like what is this organization done like carl is still very much either tied for number one or number one when it comes to uh, you know, that sort of mindset of, of the team. You don't make that move unless you're trying to maximize what Carl Anthony Towns has to give you. Um, Ant is the future. Um, Tim Connolly said they need to make every move going forward with him in mind. Um, but again, I point to the one big move that they made, and I'm not sure that that was 100% with Ant with just ant in mind. Um, so it's, it's a tricky dynamic, a tricky balance. I, I, I do think that, you know, at least having, 
having a, a playoff roster is going to be beneficial to to Ant, to Jaden, um, even though Jaden wasn't in the playoffs this year. Um, you know, I think that can only help them from that perspective. You just wonder, did they, you know, have they sacrificed too many assets to, you know, be detrimental to that younger core of right. Ant and Jaden, that timeline? You know, you, you gave up you, a little bit of your ability to be super competitive with that timeline to be more competitive now. Right. Um, ultimately. So I still think cat is still very high on the, on the organizational pecking order. Um, but this year is a huge year for everything. Yeah. Um, everything has to come together this year or else come next summer, we could be talking about major changes because of all the money that's going to be coming on the books. So ask me that a year from now and we'll see, what, we'll see where we're yeah. at. Yeah, and I think a lot of us want those answers sooner, but you're right. I think maybe they're looking at it with a slightly, you know, medium term view right now. Now, all that said, circling back on the Gobert trade, Gobert trade, um, Towns on that podcast I referenced, and I've talked about this a couple times on this show already, um, said that he was surprised by the Gobert trade, that it, it took him by surprise, essentially, and that he had to you know, relearn or learn on the fly that he was going to be the four, not the five this year. And that he took it as a challenge. He didn't, you know, he wasn't, I don't think he was overly negative about it, but I think the fact that he said it was a surprise to him caught me a little bit by surprise. And, you know, we, we can't escape the shadow of that Gobert trade. I think even was it uh, over the weekend, um, you know, uh, statistical guru uh, from 538, Nate Silver, even weighed in and called it the worst trade of all time, just kind of out of nowhere, just you know, <laughs> dumping sand on everybody. But uh, uh, as as you think about as you think about that um, and kind of that 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 piece of that piece of the puzzle and Towns being surprised by it, what what do you make of what do you make of that kind of hearing him say that? I mean, it kind of is in line with what he said last summer. He he said he didn't really um, have any real inclination it was happening and i think the line that he said last summer was somebody said that they traded for rudy from utah and he thought rudy gay at first uh was coming here that was that was what he said uh i think last summer when we when we spoke to him um but i do think that you know for a long time they were looking for another big man to pair with him so i don't think that that concept should have come as a huge shock to Carl uh, because that's something that the organization had stated Finch had talked about uh, prior to the Gobert trade happening was you know looking for some sort of front court upgrade a guy to pair next to Carl so so getting somebody of that that could play that position should not have been a surprise the fact that it was Rudy Gobert and the trade was as massive as it was, I think was the surprise. So I think that's probably maybe more of what he means. Um, But, you know, I don't think that it should have been a shock that he was going to be playing more of the four. Yeah. Finally, um, let's end, let's end on this. Um, A lot of these questions, um, another question needs to be answered first. Is Tim Connolly going to be here? to make these decisions and we don't have any inclination to believe that he necessarily won't be, but he's not shut the door on, you know, 
definitively, and he was on, you know, when he talked to reporters a couple of weeks ago, and then he was on with Chad Hartman last week. Um, you know, he's been asked multiple times, like, can you definitively say you're going to be here that you're not interested in that Washington job? And he didn't really shut it down. He he could have shut it down in a far more definitive way. And the Wizards still have not hired a new executive. And it's been a few weeks now, right? I, that happened in yeah, the middle of that playoff series, now. right? Yep. Yeah, it was it's been over three weeks, maybe or, or close to three weeks at this point. And there haven't really been any rumblings nationally of you know, people that have been reportedly linked to the job. It's everybody, you know, it, it just seems to be that, that Connolly is the only one that's linked to it because he interviewed for it before, but right. we don't know. We don't know if they've, you know, any, any sort of steps uh, have been taken to kind of initiate any talks on that, on that front. And it's been a, a very quiet process from a national perspective. So. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting. I mean, I'm I'm trying to imagine like, you know, organizationally, what if if he, yeah, you know, just hypothetically, like if he did leave, like what would, what would that signal would 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 it be, you know, whoever's coming in and, and taking charge, whether it's you know Gupta again or or somebody else would have a, a certain amount of decisions to to make that are that are awfully big, but. I know a lot of that's getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm just trying to imagine this playing out in certain ways. And what what do you think? What's the best case scenario for them in all this? If 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 he leaves, or, or I just just or, in general, like what what do you think they want? I, I I hope they still like him, but after the Gobert trade, I have to imagine well, this, some... this is this is this is an organization that needs continuity. Of that's some what I sort. think in a certain like degree, yeah. this this. There's been too much change with yeah. this with this franchise throughout its history. That's kind Especially of what I was getting throughout at, its think, recent yeah. history. Yeah, I, you need stability and leadership, stability and coaching for the for the people that want to fire Chris Finch. He's the second winningest coach in franchise history. Yeah, because you know coaches barely last two seasons here in Minnesota. Um, this organization has lacked stability, and how did Tim Connolly develop Denver into what they are now? organizational stability the same people in the same spots for years with the same program the same development plan for young talent and that's how denver became who they were it wasn't just swapping people in and out because you didn't like how they performed for a quarter of the season or half the season you stuck with you stuck with them and now they're in the western conference finals again um so i think that has to be the the ultimate goal is finding some sort of stability within the organization. The sane voice in the sea of cries, Chris Hine. <laughs> <laughs> I know we all like everybody wants things faster. They want to accelerate know, the timeline, but the, they want everybody fired and, and this and that. And yeah, but I just think it's, it's a lot of knee jerk reaction stuff and frustration and anger has to go places. Um, you know, so yeah, I get it. I get it. And and the front office is, you know, the and and, and the coaching staff are obviously the, the easiest targets for, yeah. for some of that. Yeah. And sometimes the players too, but fire well, everybody, trade everybody, but, you yeah, know, it's just that easy. Over. It's just that easy. Get well, rid of everybody but Ant and Jaden and start over. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're always they've they started over enough times. I don't think they need to they don't need a re uh, a re a complete reboot, but still an interesting off season. Um, you know, no no first round pick, but you know decisions to make going forward, and we'll see 
what they end up doing in the next month or two, and that could really shape their future. Chris Hine, good stuff as always. Go read his Anthony Edwards story, Star Tribune, startribune.com, and uh, we will talk to you again down the road. Thank you, Mike. Postscript to that conversation with Chris Hine was uh, just noticing that Lakers and Nuggets in Game 1 of the Western Conference Finals is tonight. Kind of raises some what-ifs for the Timberwolves, right? Because the Lakers had a much easier path than the Wolves. Much better team, uh, I think, right now, obviously, with LeBron James and Anthony Davis at full strength and some better supporting cast right now. But the Wolves had beaten the Lakers in that play-in game. They might have had a much more reasonable path in the playoffs, not saying they beat Memphis, not saying they beat Golden State, but a much easier path, as it turns out, than Denver, I think, at the very least. So what if there had they won that play-in game and been the seventh seed and not had to work to be the eighth seed? The other what if is now um, you know, that they lost to Denver, that Den- Denver has advanced all the way to the Western Conference Finals, taking care of Phoenix in six games. And, you know, combined with the Dallas Stars winning on Monday night, finishing off the Seattle Kraken in Game 7, um, got tense at the end. It was 2 nothing. It was one nothing for a long time. Then it was 2 nothing Stars. Um, Seattle got one in like with like about 20 seconds left to pull it closer, but could not get the final equalizer in the final second. So Dallas moves on. Dallas and Denver <clears throat> have both moved on. The teams that eliminated the Wild and Wolves, respectively. I posed a question on Twitter. Does the fact that they both advance and are in the conference finals now of the NHL and NBA, respectively, does that make you feel better about the Minnesota losses, worse, or you don't care? And, you know, this is posted late at night, but it's got a few hundred votes so far. Most of you don't care. 62% are on the don't care about those teams having success beyond that series with the Wolves and Wild. So good for you. Thirty About 30% of you said they makes you feel better about the Minnesota losses. They lost to good teams, and I can respect that. And about 9% of you say you feel worse about the losses. I think most of you who answered this um, have a disposition to not like Dallas because they stole the Stars, stole the North Stars almost 25 years ago, and I get that. I think that's fair. Um, <clears throat> just food for thought. Just thought it was interesting. thought I would ask that question. Like, Do you still pay attention once the Wild and Wolves lose? Do you care if the team that beat them um, wins or loses beyond that because then it does mean, hey, you were either beaten by a good team or beaten by a team that lost right away. And it seems like a lot of you either don't care or it does make you feel a little bit better about those Minnesota teams. Let's finish with the cooler, by the way. Just a final thought about Zadarius Smith now that he's been traded to the Browns. Just interesting in this salary cap era, right? A guy who was instrumental in the Vikings' early season success, at least. He had like eight and a half sacks in their first seven games. Didn't do much over the final ten. I think it was just like one and a half sacks as he kind of battled through some knee issues, stuff like that. But a guy who had ten, you know, 10 sacks for a team that won 13 games, and people just couldn't wait couldn't wait to see Darius Smith out the door. It was, you know, in this salary cap era, as some people look more at cap numbers sometimes than they do productivity than they do at production. And I think we all knew this was going to happen at some point, especially when the Vikings signed Marcus Davenport, and they already have um, Daniil Hunter, of course. But just interesting to me, this happens in every sport, not just football, but it seems like a football um, a football specialist, a football special problem too. This this is one that happens in football maybe more than other sports, where the cap is so fixed, you have to be uh, you have to be under the cap, and you have to kind of move on from players. 
And I, th- I just feel like, you know, Zedaria Smith's a good player. In, in, di- in a different era without a salary cap, people would have been clamoring to keep him, to have him around for another year. Instead, it seems like it's more of a good riddance. So again, just food for thought, just kind of the modern era of sports, how things work, how things work in a salary cap sport. That will do it for me today. Should be a bunch of good stuff coming up tomorrow. Hoping to get some Gophers softball content on the show later next uh, later this week. Hoping to get some outdoors content as well, and maybe a special appearance from local NFL writer Matthew Collar. So that is call coming up later this week. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Sunshine, beautiful day. Go get out there. Listen to this podcast outside whenever you can this summer and this spring because it is these are the days, like I always tell my kids, that we wait for all winter long. Again, Michael Rand, talk again tomorrow.